All right, we're, this is our last Sunday of Advent. Uh, we have been working through some parts of Isaiah, especially the parts that have referred to what we know to be the suffering servant and have pointed forward to the coming Christ. And so this last is the last place in Isaiah in which Christ essentially is mentioned. Um, Isaiah 61, this is the last passage on the suffering servant. It occurs in a portion of the book, which is chapter 60 through 65, 66, um, 66, that actually is pointing forward to the eschatological or end time. And so it would be uh, something wonderful for you this week to take some time to read through those six or seven chapters and just get a feel for what the prophet was pointing forward to and how he understood it to look, right? Because he uh, understood way more than even we do. He had a chance to actually stand before the throne, if you know Isaiah's story, and, and be touched with the coals from before the throne such that his mouth would be, become the mouthpiece of God himself. And so what a wonderful thing to kind of study. So if you get a chance to do that this week, I would encourage you in that. But this chapter, uniquely, um, for those of you who are literary and, again, have been offended at the violence that I've done to poems the last two weeks, um, I will do no violence this week. You'll get the entire chapter. And so, uh, so we'll actually keep it within its literary framework. And the chapter is essentially broken down into three parts. The first person that's going to speak is the suffering servant who is going to detail his purpose. The second person to speak is going to be God himself who's going to yet again confirm his covenant promises. And the last person to speak will be the prophet Isaiah himself as he is responding in worship to what he has heard from the suffering servant and from God himself. Another way that we could look at the breakdown of this chapter is that it basically details that it is in Christ alone, by God's grace alone, through our faith alone by which we are saved. There's no other means by which man can be saved. Um, and in fact, uh, I love this quote from Horatius Bonar from Everlasting Righteousness. He says, for we are not saved by believing in our own salvation, nor by believing in anything whatsoever about ourselves. We are saved by what we believe about the Son of God and His righteousness. Did you get that? Because during the Advent season, um, I think that a lot of times we get tangled up and caught up in what we believe about ourselves. We, we are defined by the things either that we did or that we didn't do or that we did well or that we didn't do well. There's all kind of things that can kind of creep in on us and make us think more about ourselves than we ever do about Christ Himself. And it is in Christ alone, by God's grace alone, through faith in all of that reality alone by which we are saved. And so this season is beautiful in that it uniquely calls us to focus on the advents of Christ in a very unique way. And I pray that you've done that and will continue to do that um, as the day of Christmas approaches. Now, for those of you who say, you're an idiot. Christ was born in April. I know. I, I get it. However, this is a season in which it has been celebrated and that we uniquely have actually wanted to set it apart from the re resurrection of Christ, which is on Easter. So we have this separation for the purpose of worship, not because we were overly concerned with being accurate on the date itself. And so, um, so the thing that we are to focus on, is, as Horatius Bonar says, is that the gospel believed is what saves, not the believing in our own faith. Now, the, begs the question, what is it that comes to your mind when you hear the term good news? What, what comes to your mind when you hear that? Hey, I, I've got good news for you. 
your hope is that I really genuinely have some good news for you and that that good news is going to benefit you, right? So if for those of you who work and your boss comes to you and he says, hey, I've got good news for you. What? Okay, yeah, I'm excited now. What is it? Uh, You get a raise. You're going to get a raise this year. You're going to get a bonus this year. Now, that's beautiful, isn't it? How many of you have ever gotten a raise? How many of you are still celebrating that one raise you received? Really, right? It didn't last, did it? How many of you, man, you, were, you couldn't wait to have that first kid? You were so excited. You couldn't wait, and, and you got the good news. Hey, you're pregnant, and you got the good news. The baby's heart is healthy, and everything is fine, and then the baby was born, and then the baby decided it didn't care much for sleep like you do, and then the baby decided it didn't care for rules and regulations like you do. And so was that good news as celebrated all along the way, or does the veneer kind of wash off sometimes? I'm not saying you don't love your children, so don't hear me in this Spartan sense, but, uh, but I am saying is that what I am saying is most of the good news that we receive, it doesn't last, does it? Somewhere along the way, either we grow numb to it, or we get used to it, or it ceases to be effectual. The raise gets spent, inflation outpaces the raise, the, the, you know, the bonus gets spent, the child evidences its sinful nature, all of those things. I, I can't help but remember, um, I, was, uh, I, was, I think I was, I was 16, and I, I was trying to get a job at UPS, right? I was currently working for minimum wage, which at that time was like four twenty-five an hour. And so this job at UPS was going to pay 8 bucks an hour plus $1 toward college, right? I was fixing to make all kind of money. And so, and so I, just, I, I, just, I kept saying, if I could just get this job, everything would change. And it did. I worked from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m., which 4 hours times 8 really doesn't translate to all that much now, does it? And it didn't prove to be the salvation that I thought it was going to be. Because I don't know if you've ever loaded and unloaded trucks on the midnight shift with someone screaming at you because you couldn't remember the zip code for Zebulon, Georgia. But it wasn't what it turned out to be. It wasn't the good news I thought it was going to be. See, that's the beauty of the good news that Christ brings. Is this good news temporary that he brings? Is your salvation predicated on anything? Other than him. It is not. Is it predicated on you being able to continue to evidence your worthiness in order to maintain it? Is there there an out clause somewhere? No, there is not. Now you may say, well Cameron, that sounds a whole lot like cheap grace, man. No, it is not. It's incredibly costly grace. It cost the Son of God his life, and it cost him separation from his Father for such a period of time that he cried from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we would never cry those words who know him as Savior. And so it is not cheap grace at all. It's very costly. In fact, we should live in light of that reality. That's why I said earlier, my longing for this church, and I know we're all at different places in terms of sanctification, but my great longing is that we would grow in our maturity, that we would no longer be long on diagnosis and short on cure, telling me all the things that are wrong that we could do better, all of the things that we didn't get right this Advent season, all of the things, well, if we had nothing else, We have Christ. 
And if that's not enough for you, I'm not sure where you're going to go. And so here's the, the critical piece to this entire puzzle. In order for us to grow, we have to have such a treasuring of what Christ has done for us, a, a recognition of what it is that he has given to us, this suffering servant, this baby king, this advent one who has come once and is coming again to make all things new. If we would treasure that, it would change lots and lots of things for us. We would begin to grow in a way that we cannot grow considering anything else. And so, as we turn to the text, Isaiah 61, let's keep that in mind. Let's, let's see what it is that we ought to treasure as we first look at the first six verses which declare what it means to be in Christ alone, which is the suffering servant's purpose. Hear God's word this morning. The Spirit of the Lord of God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Let me pause right there for a second. We've heard this before, haven't we? And this is an, an incredibly important statement that it identifies uniquely who Christ is. Remember how John in his baptism said, I see that the Lord is upon him. He has been anointed. The only time you hear those two words together is when a king is being declared. And this unique king, as I might remind you, is the only king who can actually do what comes next. Remember, we talked about no earthly king could ever take up the cause of the poor. Can't. The power brokers determined that it cannot be so. If you don't believe me, notice how the current president of our United States has been treated by those who put him in office because he has not done near enough for the poor. Because he, too, is subject to the power brokers of this world. Only a king that has power in and fully of himself can truly take up the cause of the poor, the brokenhearted, the captive, and the mourners. And that includes every single one of us. So let's listen at what this king come to do. He said, the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Let me pause right here just for a second to read a quote from John Oswald so we can find out who are the poor because a lot of times we tend to think this is maybe only spiritual or we tend to think this is only material but it is truly both and. Who are the poor? Those who are so broken by life that they have no more heart to try. Have any of you been there? Have any of you ever stood in that place in the midst of the grandness of your own poverty where you said, I don't have anything left to give? I have. He says, those who are so bound up in the various addictions that liberty and release are a cruel mirage. Any of us who have struggled with addiction, myself included, understands what it means to be bound and to be captive. You understand fully what it means to not be free and long for liberty, but it is but a cruel mirage because your own biochemistry or the circumstances or the, the darkness of your own heart or the brokenness of your own mind will not let you go free. 
And he goes on to say, those who think that they will never again experience the favor of the Lord. Who among you have ever stood in a place where you thought, the Lord has turned his back on me. And I will never again see his shining face. The favor has departed. I am Ichabod. He goes on to say, or see his just vengeance meted out against those who have misused them. How many of you would long to see those who have wronged you suffer the justice you think they so incredibly deserve? Good that the guillotine doesn't fall as quick as you would like because there may be those who think the same of you. He goes on to say, those who think that their lives hold nothing more than ashes sackcloth and the fainting of heaviness and despair. These are they to whom the servant Messiah shouts good news. See, the thing is, unless we first recognize the bad news, that every single one of us are cut off from the living God by the sin that we inherited from Adam and Eve and then we quickly took up by our own hand to perpetrate again and again and again. It has cut us off from everything that is life. It has cut us off from everything that is ultimately and truly good. It has cut us off from eternity. It has cut us off from being able to celebrate and have joy and be free. And in that, we are truly impoverished. If you don't know the depths of your own poverty as cut off from God, then you don't know Christ. If you have not been brokenhearted by the sin and brokenness of this world, if you haven't opened a newspaper and said, come Lord Jesus, if you have never looked at it and thought, what hope is there for any of this? Then you don't know Christ. If you have never recognized that you are bound by certain things, you are bound to do certain things, that you are sometimes hemmed in in such a way that you're going to act the same way over and over and over and over again, no matter how hard you try, no matter how many books you read, no matter how many times you beg God to take away the thorn in your flesh. If you don't recognize that you are bound, you don't know Christ. Now, are those statements strong? Yes, and they need to be because sin is incredibly destructive and it is incredibly strong and it doesn't care who you are or why you're here and it doesn't care anything about you but your destruction in the end because the devil is a little bitty kitty that would love for you to pet it and hold it. No, he is a roaring lion seeking your abject destruction. He's not looking for followers, he's looking for food. So it's critical that we first confess how bad the bad news really is and recognize in light of that how glorious is the good news. That there is one who has come to say to those who are poor there is good news. And to take that broken heart that feels like it can't beat much longer in your chest and bind it back together and make it new again. And for those who are shackled to take the shackles off and set you free like he did the shepherds on that night when the sky burst open and beckoned to them to come and see the Christ child. For those who are just mourning and in sorrow because of all that is going on in your family, there's a headdress for you. 
that has been prepared that is greater than anything you will wear in this world. I got to witness that this weekend in part. Um, My daughter turned 19. Actually, she turns 19 today. And a year ago, the party was so thick. You know what that means? For something to be thick. It was just, it was like it was a presence in the room and there was, there was, we were cut off from each other at every angle. And I, it was so bad that I couldn't stay. I couldn't, I couldn't tolerate it anymore and I fled. Like the weak and broken and impoverished and bound and mourning man that I was. Because there was to be no resolution on that day and I couldn't stand in the midst of the insanity anymore. Pretending like everything was okay. And Christmas did not get any better. And the coming days didn't get any better until such time as the Lord in his providence and patience intervened. Yesterday, beautifully, my daughter turned to me and said with great tears in her eyes, how much better this year was than last. And how much she appreciated us holding the line and us being uh, able to administer to her the gospel. You know what was beautiful about that? I didn't prompt it. I didn't go to her and say, sweetheart, (laughs) we could use some encouragement. How's this year different than last? No, of her own brokenness and in her own brokenness of her heart, she turned to us. And she's even said how much she recognizes she had lost, rising up in her own strength, seeking after her own liberty that she could not purchase by her own hand. No matter how hard she tried, and believe me, she tried. What a beautiful thing to see that. Now, it's not for me to keep either, is it? Only Christ, who holds all things together, can do that. And that means that we all in our family must submit to that reality and not seek after our own way. So I have seen the exchange of a beautiful headdress, and instead of ashes, the oil of gladness. I have witnessed it, and I know many of you have too, and for some of you, it is coming. It's coming. And so my encouragement to every single one of us this day is that you would look to Christ who can do what you cannot do, who can bring good news where all you can bring is war, who can bring back together and bind up what only you can separate who can actually give gladness, whereas you will only bring sorrow and mourning with how you would do it. So, beautifully, notice what he says when he says that he comes to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance. Now, why do you think he used two different times for those two concepts? What do you think it evidences? The year of the Lord's favor versus the day of vengeance. Well, what we see here is God's great grace. It means he will be absolutely patient. Tell me, what is a day like to the Lord? A thousand years. What do you think a year is like to him? This gracious God is patient, and he has ushered in a time of favor. But to make sure that we don't cheapen grace and that we don't think that there's nothing worth fighting for and that we don't, we don't think that it's, it's just 
willy-nilly universalism, there will be a day of vengeance. There will be a day on which judgment will come and all things will be cleansed and made new. Now, should that worry us? Not at all if you know Christ. Not at all if you know Christ because that day will be the day on which the second advent, the last advent, when all tears will be wiped away. If you don't know Christ, it is on that day when your true sorrow will begin in perpetuity. So, the question that I have for us is, who among you is truly poor and brokenhearted and captive? Can you confess that? Do you recognize within yourself the moments at which you have been captive to your own will and your own way, where you said, my way is far more important than God's way? As long as I get what I want, I don't care what God necessarily wants. I'll ask for forgiveness later because I have an eternity to spend like a gambler. No, you don't. Maybe you think that your happiness is what he came to purchase with his own blood. No, as a matter of fact, it is not. What he came to purchase is freedom. What he came to purchase is a richness in his blessings that he has filled up heaven with in which we have all access to Ephesians chapter 1. He is not concerned with whether or not you're necessarily happy within that which is fading anyway. But he is concerned about your joy. And you can only have joy in Christ alone. And you will get it from nowhere else. Let's read the rest of the text. After he's given all these things, why? Why did he give these things? He gave them so that we would be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Now notice what he didn't say. He didn't say that he would plant us to be wheat and tares of self-righteousness. Notice that he didn't say, I have called you to be weeds of self-righteousness. He didn't say that, did he? He said, I've called you to be oaks of righteousness. That you would represent my glory because of how I will make you grow. Isn't that beautiful? And so we got to remember that because some of us, I think are more concerned about being wheat and tares, or tares and thorns and thistles of self-righteousness. And he also says that they shall build up the ancient ruins and they shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. So he's saying, I have come to make you into something. Architects of peace. Architects of righteousness. I've come to make you into priests and ministers. That's interesting, this verse where it says that, that the foreigners will be the ones who are the plowmen and the vine dressers. Now, let me tell you what that means. It doesn't say that we're going to be kings and, and rulers over those people. It's going to be that the kings of this earth are going to say, no, you are the people of the Lord. How might we serve you now instead of you serve us? This truly is evidence that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And it is not that we will lord this over anyone, that the nations will be drawn to actually serve the purpose and the glory of the Lord. Amen? 
And so we need to make sure that we keep in right perspective what it is that God came to make us into. If he has called us to be priests and ministers, that's not, not, all of you are not called to do what I'm currently doing, by the way. Nor would many of you want to, I can guarantee you. I'm, I'm very serious about that. Um, the weight of it is incredible. Um, the cost is incredible. And so to be a priest and a minister is not to have to stand up and talk, but to actually care about what's going on in people's lives, but to actually care about what's going on in your neighbor's lives, actually care about what's, what, what, whether or not the Lord is being glorified in our worship, to care about those things. And see, this is what I want our church to become. This is what Christ came to make us into, is architects of peace and and, and priests and ministers to the surrounding nations such that they would see the glory of the Lord, that we would be on display missionally. So one of the things I would say very practically, as you think through anything, as you engage in anything related to Christ Community Church, I don't care if it's, um, if it's, if it's a critique, I don't care what it is. First, ask yourself this question, and I think it'll help. Is what I'm concerned about redemptive? Is it moving toward redemption and restoration. And am I willing to participate in that? Or are you just trying to put a little bug in somebody's ear, hoping that it will make its way all the way back around to me so that you can continue to be passive-aggressive and I can maybe catch up with you at some point? No. No, we, we need to be about loving one another, loving our neighbors, and building up what has been torn down by this broken and fallen world. We need to be about seeing the, the gospel go forward and it transform every single one of our lives. That's what we need to be about first and foremost. So know this. If you come to me and you say, hey, Cameron, I, I want to talk to you about something. I'm asking you this question straight away, so be prepared for it. Is what you're about to tell me going to encourage and participate in redemption and restoration? If you cannot answer my question, I will bid you a good day. Now, is that harsh? Am I just mean? No, I, I, I just I don't want to get tangled up in the stuff that don't matter. We've, we've got that in spades. We've got it all over the place, don't we? We've got drama everywhere. We don't need more. We need to grow up. So it is in Christ alone that we will grow up. Let's look at the next part of the text where God speaks. Verse 7, it says, Instead of your shame there will be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense. I will make them an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. Now, we see here that the Lord who is speaking is saying that he, he loves justice. He wants for things to be reconciled. And the only justice that we can truly receive is in Christ alone. If Christ has died on our behalf, if he has borne the weight of our sin, past, present, and future, taking away the shame and the guilt and the fullness of God's wrath and the brokenness of his body and has granted us newness of life in his resurrection, then justice has been served on your behalf. But if you don't want that justice, there's another justice for you in the day of vengeance. 
where you get to pay for it all if you want to. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to have to pay for the things I've done. I don't want to have to be the one who puts the money down for my life. And so God loves justice, and he, he, he does not want to rob us and not give us all that, it, it, that, is, that we are worthy of in Christ alone to receive as image bearers of God. He wants to give it to us all. I love what uh, J. Alec Mortier says here. He says, The Lord required unreserved commitment from his people, and anything less was robbery. He now recalls this in order to illustrate the fact that in his faithfulness, he will himself hold nothing back when he recompenses his people. He will live up to his own standards. Meaning that what he has required of us, he will give us even in greater measure a double portion. Amen? And to get a double portion of grace, of joy, of peace, amen. Who would not want that? And so here we see God also fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant. He said their children will be known. He's saying I will keep my covenant. It is all on me. I will make an everlasting covenant with my people. And so the question that I have for us is how has God transformed your shame and dishonor? How has he used what what he has transformed to reveal his glory and his faithfulness to others. Because again, remember, you were saved for a distinct purpose, and that is to actually bear the image of God in such a way that he would be glorified among the nations. That is it. It's the whole reason for your salvation. And are you doing that? That's a great question to ask ourselves. We ask a lot of questions, don't we? Where's this? Why didn't we do that? Why is this missing? But do we ask the most important question of all? Which is, am I actually displaying the glory of the Lord for which I have been fashioned in newness of life, being transformed into the image of Christ? Does anybody see in me the glory of this transformation? Is there anything different about me? Then the prophet responds to what has been purchased in Christ alone, what has been given by God's grace alone, he responds with faith alone. Listen to his words. Verses 11, 10 and 11. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. So did, did Isaiah take on the garments himself? Did he go to the closet and find the garments? Who clothed him? Do you have any idea how important this is? Have you, have you guys been to any kind of ceremonial thing where, where someone is clothed as evidence of their, their change either in, uh, in receiving a, a degree or something like that? It, is, it's, it can be an impressive thing. So this is even more impressive still. He didn't go find the clothing. It was in Christ alone, by God's grace alone, that he was granted this new covering, which we know to be that he is covered in the blood of Christ. He is, his sin is utterly covered, not to be seen again. And he goes on to say, He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will, listen, cause righteousness and praise. Did you hear that? 
So who is the prime agent in all of this? There's got to be at least one Christian in this crowd by odds. Who caused this? God did. You cannot produce your own righteousness. What you will produce is self-righteousness, which, as we all know, is utterly unattractive, isn't it? How many of you think, man, that that Cameron, he is one self-righteous joker. I can't wait to eat lunch with him. He's going to tell me how great he is. It's going to be incredible. No one says that. No one wants to engage with and spend time with someone who is utterly self-righteous. It is only through God who can cause both righteousness and praise to pour forth from us. Listen to what it goes on to say. And to sprout up, and, and all of that will sprout up before all nations. Again, what's the purpose? To display his glory before those who do not know him. That's it. And if we don't understand that, we're missing something very significant about the Christian life. And in fact, you will be left to till the hardened ground of self-righteousness. You will be left to till the hardened ground of your critique. You will till the hardened ground of your preferences. You will till the hardened ground of your own hardened heart. And you will not experience the joy and the peace that comes in Christ alone, by God's grace alone, through faith alone. So here the prophet rightly responds to all of this and declares that it is in God alone who will give the increase. Listen to what Charles Simeon says. Let us be ashamed that we can be so regardless of God's honor. Let me, let me read that again. Let us be ashamed that we could be so regardless of God's honor and so indifferent about the salvation of our fellow men. And whilst we pray to God to effect this great work, let us, according to our respective abilities, be fellow workers with him. And never rest till... The wilderness become a fruitful field, and the fruitful field be counted for a forest, which is Isaiah 32, 15. I don't know about you, but those words I find to be devastating and comforting. They're devastating in that they call me out all too well. Confessionally, I can say to you there are times when I am utterly regardless of God's honor, and I really just care about me, and I'm only going to defend me. And there are times I couldn't care less if somebody comes to Christ or not. I'm not going to do the work necessary to do it because I don't want them to be mad at me. I don't want them to think ill of me. I don't want them to think I'm some sort of zealot. You know, as a former radical anti-theist, the worst thing you can do is call me a zealot. And yet, what have I become? A fool for Christ. (laughs) So these words do penetrate my own soul as well. And I don't want... To rest until it is a fruitful field. I don't want our church to grow because of lateral movement between churches because they got mad at church A and they figured, hey, there's a new pastor that'll probably do what I ask him to do because he needs people with money. (laughs) It's not my first rodeo. Um, And so I don't want that. 
I don't want to pull people from other churches. I want us to be missional and love our neighbors and to see people actually truly come to Christ and be transformed and long to see things changed. Amen? But I know that only God can give that increase. And so I want us to be a dependent church on the Lord himself for us to care about his honor. So, where are you sowing and or watering the seeds of the Advent? How has God granted and provided the increase to his glory? Praise be to God that yesterday I saw some sprout come up in my daughter. Praise be to God that my son was there to witness it and he too is part of that redemption process. Praise God that the rest of the family is able to partake of the fruit of that reconciliation because of their willingness to participate in the fullness of the process, which was incredibly hard. So what do we do with all this? Listen to what John Calvin says in the golden booklet of the true Christian life. He says, the gospel is not a doctrine of the tongue, but of life. It cannot be grasped by reason and memory only, but it is fully, listen, it is fully understood when it possesses the whole soul and penetrates to the inner recesses of the heart. It must produce some sort of action and response. Otherwise, it is utterly worthless. So, Jesus Christ is the suffering servant who came to preach the good news to the poor and bind up the brokenhearted and liberty to the captives and to those who mourned in order that these four things would happen according to the text. That we would be transformed into oaks of righteousness to the glory of the Lord. That we would participate in restoration and renewal as architects, priests, and ministers. And that we would have our shame and dishonor transformed by the faithfulness of the Lord our God. And finally, that we could sow and water the seeds of redemption and God would grant that missional, beautiful increase. That is the whole reason for the Advents. Amen?